In this episode, we're going to go through a bunch of news quick hits, what's happening in the world right now, some interesting developments, uh, including uh, the war in Ukraine. Is it coming to an end? Uh, we are a day before the FEMA warning system is supposed to happen. This is Tuesday. Uh, that happens Wednesday, which will be two, two days prior to this going live. So we're going to explore that before it happens. We'll see what hap- uh, what, what we, uh, if any of our predictions are true. Uh, Kevin McCarthy's out as Speaker of the House. There's a lot of disruption there in Washington, D.C., and then finally, and most importantly, something I've been thinking about so much that Chorus and I have been talking about privately, and it's the idea of Christian nationalism. Should Christians be for it? And if not Christian nationalism, what form of government? So we're going to kind of play around with that. I've got some references, some things to stir the debate. I think you might be curious to hear what I think and what, what uh, Chorus thinks. You won't be surprised, though, I imagine. Okay. Uh, with that, I don't think really... I don't have a show and tell. I really have this... I have one in mind, but I, I, didn't, I didn't bring them because I didn't go to the shop today. But uh, Anyways, uh, let's get into the show. All right, the first solo episode in a little bit, we have Chorus on the Buttons. What's up, Chorus? I'm over here. Hey, guys. How you doing? How you been? I've been good. I've been reflecting on last week's episode and some of the ideas of, in particular, the, uh, what did she call it? The MVP, the Minimum Viable Product? Yeah, starting first. Yeah, it's hard to know, especially in like the world of design because it's purely aesthetics. It's like, well, shouldn't I be delivering the final product? You know, yeah. when it leaves my desk, what is the threshold for completion or success? But uh, specifically with my team, trying to figure out, hey, let's get this off the ground. Let's get something that does the job. And then from there, let's refine. So it's been beneficial, thought provoking. Yeah, definitely. And I don't think it's like a one size fits all either, right? Totally. The idea of MVP, like that's works for the tech industry, get the app up and then kind of get feedback and then go from there. But if you're like delivering a product to a client like you, a branding package or something, I guess in the in the development phase, you got to go through those types of steps, where you got to you know feel her out, say okay, what are you thinking about this direction, and then kind of get the approvals. Okay, cool, I'll go all in on this. But well, I guess maybe you could technically call that an MVP. But when you deliver a, pro- a project to a client, you probably want to deliver it finished and. Yeah, it's got to be done. You you can't yeah. like say oh you know this will really grow <laughs> into its yeah. final application. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, definitely in the development phase, I think it's like when we're when we're, mm-hmm. you know, throwing Perfect. around creative ideas, let's have those conversations. Let's give feedback quick and often and, uh, and let's figure out what, what's sticking, what's not sticking so that you're not wasting time heading in a fruitless direction, you know? Yeah. Yeah. I thought it was a good conversation. Thanks again, Janae, for coming on and Aaron for helping officiate that. Uh, we are at our private, at our church, of course, and I go to the same church and he, uh, works on the design team, heads it up and some capacities uh he was uh we had a little feature our podcast our show here had a, a little feature in the sermon series intro video and i wanted to show you guys but it's um i'll show you and then we could talk about it after welcome back to for goodness sake the podcast um today we're going to get into kind of the statistics that uh 
define our city. We're not known for much positive, sadly, but there is good news. Chorus, have you been hearing about some of these benevolent actors uh, I've been hearing about? Yeah, people are talking about this. It seems like there is this covert group that's trying to take on some of these issues themselves, uh, dealing with homelessness, trying to uh, give some people resources that they wouldn't otherwise have. Graffiti cleanup is another thing, or uh, beautification, like murals being painted around town. And uh, it seems to be happening from a group that's leaving behind a crown symbol wherever they wherever they uh, work. Yeah, and it seems like they have this desire, this ambition to convert the city toward good and kind of change things around. Wouldn't that be a change? It's true. I think a lot of people have the mindset like, you know, the city needs to take care of this. The government needs to handle this. It's someone else's problem. And I'm just, you know, living in this mess. But uh, this group is displaying the idea that, you know, you can take it upon yourself and actually make a difference uh, in the day-to-day lives of Albuquerque, you know, residents. It would be awesome if we were known for good things, for positive things, for Christianity, for the faith, for redemption, for revival, for God taking over our city. Man, I feel that so hard. The first time I saw it, because I hadn't seen it, um, we recorded it for uh, Jordy, our friend who was also on the podcast, one of the early episodes. That was Jordy and, and Chorus, heavily involvement there. Um, we f- we did that for him and uh, kind of just, I don't know, what do you like, just ad-libbed it? Yeah, and we kind of just bantered back and forth. We had like the basic premise and just kind of let it rip. Yeah. And when I listened to that, uh, not this Sunday, but the Sunday prior, I, I, I couldn't help but be, I was overwhelmed with like emotion. And now it sounds like kind of funny. It's like, you're like, you know, crying at your own voice or you know, whatever. No, but it, it's, I, I think it was just this weird, profound thing that was, I was, re, I was realizing this, this call. But, you know, like I, I talk about it a lot on the show about coming back to Albuquerque and kind of sowing and the ideas to sow, not necessarily reap. This show, for example, is a labor of love. I love, I love what we do here. This is, this is so fun, exciting. It's exciting. Um, and I guess it's rewarding in a, in a, in a, I don't know, developments type of thing, or just kind of being able to experiment and explore. And hopefully it is for you as well, Chorus. But my perspective in coming back to Albuquerque was to, to sow and in hopes of, of seeing better days. And Jeremiah 29.7 kind of sums this up, and it's a, it's a comforting, uh, visionary-type scripture that I lean on in this, in this vein. And it says, Also seek the peace and prosperity of the city to which I have carried you into exile. Pray to the Lord for it, because if it prospers, you too will prosper. And those of you guys who know of Albuquerque, New Mexico, from maybe not even living here, but have seen Breaking Bad or all those different things, you know, I, we were talking about ad-libbing it, and I was thinking, man, it is a bummer. 
It's a bummer that we are known for such negative things, drugs. Oh, it's wild. And, and, and these things are not just in Albuquerque. There are many places, fentanyl overdoses, all these different things. Crime, no consequences, um, poverty, low education rates, all these different things. Not to like, you know, bum everyone out, but you know, this is kind of Albuquerque's reputation. We are last in many things, New Mexico. And, uh, and it's been really conflicting. My wife and I have thought, why are we here? Let's move. But the wording of that scripture, to seek the peace and prosperity, the city to which I have carried you into exile. And, and at times it feels like we're in exile. I don't know if you feel that way, Chorus. Yeah, especially visiting larger cities, which arguably have maybe more of the same problems. Mm. Um, I'm reminded of like, for how small of a town Albuquerque is, how big our problems are. Mm. Um, and I go to these cool places and there's a lot of fun stuff to do and there's culture and art and stuff. Um, even driving around shooting this video, I was on this video shoot that we just watched together. And it's funny cause uh, our lead actor, Connor, he's like, well, tell me about the series. Like I know what we're doing today, but what's the point, you know? And uh, we had spent all afternoon basically driving through the worst parts of Albuquerque and it's, it's very discouraging. It's hard to keep mm -hmm. your mental state kind of level in that environment. And, uh, and we were all kind of reflecting on that. And then he asked that question and ironically I had to be kind of, you know, the one to explain the vision. I was like, you know, dude, it's about not getting discouraged. And when you see the issues in our city, what do you do? Mm -hmm. How do you become part of the solution as the church, as believers? and not just gripe about the problems, you know? Mm -hmm. And uh, yeah, it's interesting. It, it's interesting to look at Albuquerque and try to take an ownership mentality versus just, man, this place sucks. It really is a flip of your mind. It's like what Paul kind of talks about is the transforming of your mind so that you can kind of, instead of like complaining, as actually what the first sermon was about, kind of this idea of like um, having this, renewed perspective. How can I, you know, be a part of the change, be the change you want to see, right? Uh, that's kind of, it's the change of perspective and it ultimately happens in, in your heart, in the change of heart. And that happened to me, you know, when I was in Nashville and I was like the Pilgrim's Progress, I've shared that story on the show and my heart changed. And I was like, oh, you don't go to places for your good. It was like the Lord said, go for its good. I'm, I'm sending you. And that's the language it says here. I'm carrying you into exile. And um, yeah, I, f I feel that really hard at moments. And, and honestly, I haven't had a negative or like a, a, a down moment of like, oh, this is such a, where this is just so dry desert. This is so miserable, Lord. Why? Honestly, for the last couple of years, it's been quite great. Um, there have been down moments, of course, but I really do think that there's something special happening. And, uh, Having, I think what was so powerful in listening to that the first time in, in, in church was seeing that our entire congregation is on the same um, focus of that as it should be. And this is, this is the beginning of kind of what we will discuss later in the show, but we're going to go into some news in a minute. But that's, I just want to be, I kind of want to declare, be clear about how that's that's my ambition in this show. That's my ambition with my business is to seek the prosperity of my city. And not just my city, but 
really ultimately the hearts of men to, to, to bolster up what is good, what is true, and, uh, and champion those things, despite the, uh, the scoffers, despite the uh, negative crowd, right? And hopefully do so with uh, being above reproach and um, with integrity, uh, you know, to the best of our ability by, by God's mercy. All right, let's have fun here. Um, so there's an interesting development I was on Twitter today, and I and this is kind of actually old news, but sometimes you know I don't know if you're scrolling Twitter, I don't, but you guys, if you guys even scroll Twitter, but you'll you'll come I'll come across like some crazy like QAnon like something weird, uh, where it's just like a wild. Okay, this is like Trump. <laughs> Trump's got Hillary, and they they just got her and they killed her. Something crazy. And, uh, and I'll see that I'm like, oh my gosh, why is this in my feed? And I'll have to like say not interested or whatever. And, uh, you have to like quickly delete the retweet. That you... <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. My retweet of yeah. it. Oh, fake <laughs> I didn't dude. mean it. Oh, sorry. No, guys. but I'll get some like pretty crazy, like fringe thoughts, you know, and stuff like that. But I, I got this one and it was like Ukrainians, um, surrendering to Russian soldiers in mass. And so I was like, I don't know if I believe that. And so I went and looked and sure enough, there is a source for it. And it's by this um, show called Redacted. Probably many of you guys have heard of. It's a pretty decent sized show because this guy's friends with Tucker Carlson, formerly his uh, relations with Fox News. So he's not like a kook or anything. But it's an interesting thing. Let's hear what he has to say. And let's talk about the biggest story of the day, which I think inarguably is what's been happening in the war in Ukraine. And we're going to be looking more deeply here in a second. So Ukraine is surrendering. I mean, that is the word. Tens of thousands of Ukrainian soldiers are laying down their weapons and surrendering to Russian troops. This is amazing, right? This is a story the Western media does not want you to see. Over the past few weeks, we've been tracking countless reports of Ukrainian men surrendering before uh, they are to be killed. So you're going to see, like, take a look at your screen here. So these are night vision uh, scenes in Ukraine, night vision capturing many of the moments as Russian forces surround these targets there they are in the brush. You can see them coming out of the brush, and they're making announcements. Come out, live, Holy or crap. you will be killed. It's wild. No, he's Thank got multiple. He says hundreds out, of videos like surrendering. this. Just look at the screen. They're waving the white. Now, why would they be doing that white, when Ukraine has Russia in a death right grip? Please do it. <laughs> You've been watching sure CNN too much, man. <laughs> taking care of. How many of you are there? Yeesh. Tell us how many of you there are. Don't lie to us. So that's Come probably out, good. I'll kind of summarize what he goes on to say. But he says um, he's got tons of videos like this. I watched a few of them where he just shows them. And um, it's like a, it's a campaign that's happening. And it's essentially like winter's approaching in Ukraine. And the morale's low. And then they're saying, hey, we'll give you food. Surrender. You'll live. You'll be safe. That's was, this is kind of like the campaign that Ru the Russians are are pushing it, you could essentially surrender by tapping into a, a, a certain radio frequency and, and, and saying you're surrendering. And so that's what they're doing in mass. He says tens of thousands of Ukrainians are, are, are surrendering, pretty much, you know, making the war, regardless of its leaders, continuing our Congress, sending money and Zelensky continuing to ask for it. It seems like that might be the way out. 
um, which would so be, they're offering like food and safety. There's a video later and, on. Uh, in that they're video. also saying most of your planes won't get shot down if you surrender now. <laughs> yeah, yeah, but it's it's crazy. All of the money that we spent on the on the weapons, on the uh, you know, they're finally just being now possessed by Russian soldiers. But um, well, if you don't believe in the cause, I can't imagine these guys looking at however many years ahead, like. Yeah. The Ukrainians are keenly aware of how long Russia There's like is like 500,000 to... Ukrainians have died already. Yeah. It, is this a, a worthy cause? Like, do we just change our mailing address, stay in our homes, and live in peace? You know yeah. what I mean? And, and, and it's, it's obvious. Now, I'm sure if you looked at a poll now versus a poll when the war first started, the American support for it is dwindling. Like, nobody supports it. The propaganda is, you know, worn off. You know, Zelensky hero narrative is not a thing anymore. Um, Dude, I was so worried that we were like heading into Vietnam 2.0. Drafts and all that stuff? Well, drafts and like the U.S. just lying about our success rates to like trick young men into joining. Yeah. And I was really concerned about that. This gives me hope that we're hopefully not going to get tied into this any deeper. Well, you mentioned earlier, you were like, yeah, I thought we had, you know, uh, Russia in a death grip. <laughs> yeah. Well, that is literal. Obviously. Yeah, obviously. But that's propaganda pushed by the state um, to keep support for the war alive so that they can continue to use our tax dollars to continue funding. And I'm happy, for one, that hopefully if this is a mass surrender, that the powers that be will lose the ability to continue this useless war, you know, that was brought on by NATO. I think most of us have a good idea of it at this point. And you saw it through all of those like Republican debates even, um, that Republicans heavily supported. It was almost like the, it was, it was and is probably still the mainstream. Like I feel, you know, I went out on a limb saying rooting for Putin because I, I felt like he was provoked into the war. Now, of course he was the aggressor in this, in the, to a degree, it depends on how you look at it. But I do think that most Americans, whether or not they'd say it out loud, I'm willing to say it out loud, believe that Putin and the Russians had no choice but to, you know, engage in this, in this battle. And they tried to negotiate all other means outside of it, but Zelensky and the West left the table, all these different things. I don't have to re-litigate the whole thing, but the public support's not there. And hopefully this is the end of it. Hopefully people will just, um, you know, well, let's skip, let's skip a couple things because it relates, right? The Kevin McCarthy ousted, he's ousted today, Speaker of the House, uh, by Matt Gates, by at the helm of Matt Gates. They had a little Twitter beef. Did you see it? It's like Speaker McCarthy was like on Twitter and he said, bring it on. And Matt, Ka- Matt Gates says, uh, I brought it. And sure oh, enough, he's out. Yeah. And uh, he won't, well, go ahead and see the video that I have there on Instagram. People have called you a narcissist. People say that is to your benefit alone. Is it to the benefit of you? As a it's the benefit of this country that we have a better Speaker of the House than Kevin McCarthy. Kevin McCarthy couldn't keep his word. He made an agreement in January regarding the way Washington would work, and he violated that agreement. We are $33 trillion in debt. We are facing $2.2 trillion annual deficits. We face a de-dollarization globally that will crush Americans, working class Americans. Kevin McCarthy is a feature of the swamp. He has risen to power by collecting special interest money and redistributing that money in exchange for favors. Uh, we are breaking the fever now, and we should elect a speaker who's better. So we- 
right? So Matt Gates is a Republican. He's a firebrand uh, Republican. But it was like him and like 10 other Republicans, def- uh, I say defected, but they voted with the Democrats to oust Kevin McCarthy as speaker. And, um, and they mad. You know, his accusation is really good, though. He's like, hey, look, this guy's, these people aren't owned by the people. Like, they're not actual representatives of the people as how this government was supposed to run. It's going to be a heavy political episode, especially in our conversation later. But rather by the special interests and donors, uh, people have money. So that he's seeing the imbalance and he's realizing that this isn't thing. Now, I'm, I'm assuming that Matt Gates' motivations are pure here. Um, so we'll see what happens. But the next thing is, uh, I guess he's also, Kevin McCarthy's not going to run again, but there's also this other theory. Uh, this is Congressman Troy Nels says, Kevin McCarthy will not be running again as Speaker. I nominate Donald J. Trump for Speaker of the House. <laughs> I don't know if he's joking or not, but that would be a crazy development. That would be insane. Yeah. I don't. I mean, he could do it. Yeah. I mean, he, they could... I don't know. There'd be a lot of like legal, probably legally unprecedented things. It's, but. Yeah, it's probably definitely unprecedented. I remember that idea being thrown around. I believe it was Matt Gates that might have even floated it. No, it might have been DC Drano. It was some sort of like, um, it, it might have been DC Drano. Actually, I think it was. Yeah, he's a lawyer. Is he really? Yeah, he is. He's a practicing lawyer, from if I'm not mistaken. So, anyways, that relates to the Ukraine thing because one of the the things that uh, Kevin McCarthy was supposed to do uh, in uphold was not one more dollar to Ukraine. And he didn't and wouldn't commit to that and a, and a list of other things, including all of the Jan 6 footage, you know, all that stuff like that. So he's out. Uh, good riddance. Okay, let's switch gears. Let's go to the, um, so I came across this video. This is wild and it's actually quite sad, but it's, and so it's, it's kind of shocking. Maybe, I don't know if it's, it's not like, I don't know, explicit per se, but it's just kind of like a pretty haunting scenario, but it's quite, uh, so it was the fire at Iraq wedding video. There was a fire at a wedding reception in Iraq. I guess there was fireworks that were shot off in, inside in this venue. There was some kind of like pyrotechnics that went wrong, I think. Oh, yeah. And it's just raining down fire on it's a horror the guests of the, of the wedding. Absolute nightmare in this big chandelier. Oh, my gosh. Or like lighting dome thing. It's all just on fire and falling on, on the people that are pretty much locked inside. I guess there's only three exits. It's a massive wedding. And... Do you recall what the death toll was? It was pretty yes. significant. It was 100. Oh my god! And then like 150 injuries. So it was a horrifying event oh at a wedding. Gosh. Children, it's terrible. So haunting. So many people. The security. Could footage. you imagine? This is an actual nightmare. I, I I don't know if that's smoke at the top or if that's like the water. The, yeah, that looks like some kind of like maybe fire yeah. deterrent, but there it's hurting people as well. It's like coming down too quickly. Yeah, the roofs pretty much it's, the roof caves in after a while. 
It's weird how quickly this building so completely fast. went up in flames. Like, they must not have any kind of... People are getting trampled, trying to get out. This is why we have fire codes, I guess, here in uh, the U.S. I'm yeah, sure they have see, them there, too, but, uh, you know. This video is, like, one of the only things I'll question my libertarian. <laughs> well, That's why we have regulations. Yeah, I'm like, oh, dang it. Yeah. <laughs> um, let's go to the next video is the couple's response. So they, the, the wedding, the married couple, they survived. Can you read it? Uh, in front of you alive, but inside we are dead. We are numb. We are dead inside. More than 100 people died when a fire ripped through a wedding in Iraq's Nineveh province. Nineveh? Nineveh. The bride and groom say they're heartbroken after fireworks at their celebration caused utter devastation. I grabbed my wife and I began to drag her. I kept dragging her and trying to get her out of the kitchen entrance as people were fleeing. People were trampling on her. Her legs are injured. The fire caught quickly and with only the three exits in the building, many of the people were trapped inside. Eyewitnesses reported a stampede as guests tried to escape. On the wedding night, why did this happen? Why did, what did we do? Why did this happen? We can't live here anymore. We can't live here anymore. I mean, in the meantime, you're trying to have some happiness. Some tragic hap something tragic happened to us and destroys the happiness. So it's best for us to leave. She's lost 10 relatives from her family, her loved ones, her mom, her brother. She can't speak. Brutal. And then it just ends on her face and she's just not, there's no unresponsive. Could you imagine, dude? Just broken. That's like straight up Job stuff. Like, really? Like, like it's such a heavy burden that they have to leave their hometown. Like the whole, the whole place. Is they got to start over. You have to start over. Too much trauma. So dark. Sorry, guys. I didn't mean to take you in that. A notable experience. Um, of no benefit to anyone. I'm sorry. <laughs> On the bright God. side, we'll discuss authoritarianism later. <laughs> no. <laughs> <laughs> we'll talk about the regulations later. You know what's weird is the first time I saw this clip, uh, it wasn't like news footage like that. It was, uh, they must have been wealthy. The, the camera footage was beautiful, but someone had slowed it down like slow-mo and played uh, like really beautiful music to it. Um, Dark. Yeah, it, it was like, they weren't like trying to show it in a in a maybe a favorable light, but they were maybe just trying to like show the magnitude of this occurrence that happened. But I had never there was no precursor to it for me. I just swipe and I'm like, whoa! There's this beautiful wedding, and then I see flames like dropping in slow motion, and I thought it was like an edit. I thought it was something like artistic, G CGI, yeah. After Effects, and then like I started to see people fleeing, and I went to the comments, and I was like, oh my gosh, this is real. This is an odd way social media. You see it on and TikTok? And the way that, yeah, the, the way that, like, news gets to you via social media yeah. is very odd. It's weird. And I almost sometimes I feel like we're, like, suggestively fed certain information. Something to be um, mindful of. Um, pulling swiftly out of that dark darkness. Um, so tomorrow is the FEMA warning system test. Test? I guess it's a test, and there's a bunch of conspiracies going around. You've been hearing about some of these? Just briefly. I've been mostly just people vaguely warning about it happening. 
uh, not really telling me why I should be concerned about it, but yeah, I don't really even, even know the theories. I guess there's like a certain frequencies that's, that's supposed to be played and it's supposed to play out of like, your, we all know now cause um, you've experienced it likely cause it's Friday, but it was supposed to be a certain frequency and then it's going to like trigger some 5g vaccine nanotech or something like that. And um, so, yeah, anyways, I don't, I don't agree with that, but there is this interesting, um, um, the Simpsons predictive programming. I thought this was quite interesting because they always seem to like get out in front of things. There's actually like this weird connection to like CIA Simpsons stuff. There's like a video I saw on this. Really? Yeah. That's, that's an understatement to say they like get out ahead of things. They're like 20 years ahead of I like know. major news occurrences. I know. There's an, there's a video funny enough on the, on the jabs where it's like, uh, maybe it's because it's always kind of been that type of culture of like, we're going to get you, you know? Um, but there was a there was a clip from an old Simpsons episode on that as well, way back when. Before actually, it might have been right before it the pan uh, the pandemic and all that stuff. Anyway, play this video. Everyone's phones are lighting up red. We interrupt Bitch Judge for an emergency broadcast. What's this thing gonna do on our phones? It's going to make your phones loud and go off. Not only your phone, but your TV, your computer, your radio. Anything oh. that receives a signal yep. will be going off tomorrow at 1.20 Central Time. This is across the entire United States. That does include Hawaii as well as Alaska. So it's 1.20 Central. That's making it 2.20 Eastern. Regardless if your phone is on silent or do not disturb, it will go off. The only way it will not go off is if your phone is turned off. So I want to know how many of you guys turned your phone off for Wednesday. I'm curious. Um, dude, is everybody going to turn into a zombie? Everybody that got the jab? Maybe they will. It's like it's going to activate the, <laughs> the zombie serum and they're just going to... Yeah, let us know if you guys... Uh, Are you guys feeling like zombies right now or what's going on with that? No, I don't know. It's um, you know what is what was uh, was sucked was getting those uh those alerts during uh, twenty twenty. We're like, don't go outside. Oh and yeah, the health alerts. Everybody's already so like depressed and like in a dark emotional state, and then you get this like jerk just reinforces it and punches you in the face. Like that's how I felt. It Dude, was we have so a, haunting. We have a. A friend in common, Stefan, mm -hmm. who is from South Africa, and he was with us with like a group of Calvary people the first time he experienced an Amber Alert, huh. and it it like threw him for a loop. It like got ruined scared. his whole day. He's like, "What is happening? What's an Amber Alert?" And we're like, "Oh well, this well if you read it, this little kid got taken," and he's like, "A kid was taken, uh -huh. and you and everyone knows about it right now." It's like, yeah, it got reported, and so there's a you know measures in place. So, you know, we're trying to explain it as like the system that's helping, you know, obviously helping this, this potential abduction or whatever. Mm -hmm. And, and for him, he couldn't get past the fact that one, um, everyone's phone just lit up. And then two, that it was like lit up with this dark news. Mm -hmm. And he's like, that is heavy. You know, what's interesting about it, actually, the psychological effects that we talked about it before, uh, mass psychosis, right? Mass formation psychosis. Well, I came across this other video. There's a there's an old psychologist or physiologist. I don't know what he was called, but he was it was the dog. It was the bell. It's a zoologist. You you familiar with the story? Is this the Pavlov's dog? Yes. 
Can you they, they find a video bell? on this? Yeah, I'll try to find one. Keep yeah, going. specifically about like mental programming, but you can use you can do the same thing to people uh, by using certain signals. It doesn't have to be necessarily audio, but you attack the senses with certain signals that evoke certain emotions naturally and repetitively, and that by the time uh, that you get people to respond a certain way, and then you can you know assert certain things. But this video I saw about this was actually it's like. This is why people were so traumatized. This is how you get that mass formation psychosis is because you hear certain words and trigger words, right? Like racist, misogynistic, and then you hear that word and then you attach it to somebody. It's like mud being slung on a person's reputation. And you immediately write that person off without any um, investigation or anything like that. It's a way of programming by suggesting psychological suggestion. Um, and I, and uh, it's, I mean, it's literal mind control. And to think it doesn't exist is, is quite naive. I mean, whether or not it's being done on a mass scale intentionally, I think it is. Especially as a marketer, you know, like, you know, I, there is ethics. We've talked about this as well. There's ethics within the marketing uh, sphere. Uh, what to do, how to do it, how to present honestly, not to deceive. There's things like that. In American culture, I don't know that that's really demonstrated or utilized um, within its bounds. We need to regulate it. I'm just kidding. Did you see, find something? There's like a thousand videos. I'm not sure if any of these would hit the nail on the head for what you're looking at. I wonder if you could get on Twitter and just kind of like Russian roulette Pavlov's dog theory. Is that what it's called? Pavlov's dog? <clears throat> But it's real. MK Ultra is real, man. Declassified CIA stuff, guys. It's weird. We ha even that, like conspiracy theorist, right? That's literally predictive, like not predictive programming, but it's it's a way of like dismissing somebody. You throw a label out there, and you're like, oh, write them off, and you'd really you'd stop considering anything else they have left to say. That's what they did with like anybody who would might might go on Alex Jones show or. Is it, oh, yeah, he's a conspiracy theorist. He's been on Alex Jones. Oh, write him off. His reputation's done. You don't even listen to anything he has to say. Now, I, I guess there's a degree of that that's like innate in our nature, and it's a way of us, you know, being able to decipher truth efficiently. Um, but it's also a, a potential vulnerability, and that's what this ex exploration, I believe. Did a Russian roulette says, inst Heck yeah. instill fear... Uh, step one in self here, show you bad side effects while threatening to make it mandatory to show side effect. People don't take it, then make it mandatory because not enough people took it. Three, Pavlov's dog circle ellipse, experiment to induce experimental neurosis. Four, confusion and... Confuse conscience. the conscious. Confuse the conscience. Hmm. What else is there? Let's see what we got. Any media? There's a Coca-Cola being opened. Don't know what that's about. This is, you know, this is always a risky thing here. We're doing the Russian Okay, roulette. so what's up with the bottle opening sound effect uh, when you say the word Coke? <laughs> yeah, seriously. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, so a lot of it too is like marketing. You, you got into that a bit, but it's like uh, jingles. That's the reason jingles yep. exist. You hear a sound. That's literally the ice cream truck. You hear the music. Like, oh, I need some ice cream right now. It's weird. It's super weird. It's like, I think the imagery of like magic or like, it's it's probably hyperbole or something like weird, but I think it helps me make sense of things like Harry Potter, like, you know, casting a spell. I find it so interesting. 
But you can like cast a spell through video and you can draw somebody in, trance somebody into a certain mental state. We use this in church. We do. Right? When music, we, and they're tools, they're mediums. They're not necessarily uh, evil. Now they can be manipulated to, uh, to an evil, uh, but they can also be used toward good. But what I'm saying here is I'm using it right now, right? Um, I've got all this imagery behind me and I'm, it's a collage of the Southwest, of, of things I like, things that uh, evoke traditional Southwest Americana, right? I've got the, you know, the religious, the, the apostle type figure. I've got, you know, the bison. And, but all these things kind of have a theme and they, they, they draw me into a state of that mindset. And you might call that channeling. Now, what, what do you call meditation, right? You, you're, you're like you, you get a scripture or something. You know, they're, they're, we, we are, are beings that use our senses. We are spiritual beings that have senses, and those senses draw us into a spiritual reality as well as a physical reality. The spiritual reality eventually manifests into the physical reality. I'm getting into some yeah weird stuff, but does that make sense? Maybe, maybe not. I think so. Um, all I'm saying is, you know, for example, we talk a lot about psychology and identity. If you think that you are a good for nothing, you know, bag of dirt, chances are you're going to manifest that. But if you can change that within yourself, deal and wrestle with your soul and your spirit and, and find the life of the gospel and inject that into your soul, well, your life's going to necessarily change. It's kind of like true saving faith. It's the argument of faith, um, that we are saved by faith and faith in Christ. Um, and that, that's, that faith, as James talks about, is eventually shows itself in good works, in good deeds. It's the evidence of a f- true saving faith. That's kind of what I'm talking about. The spiritual state eventually manifests into the physical. All right, uh, totally got off there, but did you find anything there? Or are we done with that? Pretty much done with that? I, I did see uh, an in- interesting correlation. Um, I don't have the tweet anymore. But uh, so there's this idea of Pavlov's dog where like, sensory input trains us to behave a certain way mm-hmm. but then uh how does that correlate to you think like the fa- phantom phone feelings like you know people will say they feel their phone vibrating when it's not mm-hmm. and i wonder what the what the psychological correlation mm. is there it's like being trained to even anticipate the input same thing with notifications on your phone right you try to get in your phone i mean we're programmed to be consumers in a sense, right? I mean, I remember early on Facebook days, my, MySpace, you get the notifications and the positive interaction, the social, like, oh, and then there's a status connection to that. And every notification you get is like a new status upgrade. You know, it's like, that's how it was in its origin, for me at least mentally. And I think it is for a lot of young people, especially nowadays, which is why it can be so harmful to the mind. But they tapped into this, right? The, the, one of the co-founders of Facebook admitted so on a, a video a long time ago. I remember he, uh, in front of a panel. And he said that, yeah, we use psychology. We use the dopamine hits to get people to use our app more, to get people on our apps more, to generate more income and, you know, because they can get more advertiser revenue, all these different things. 
And so they have to use our vulnerabilities and our, you know, men- mental state, our weaknesses to get us to get on the app more, to get our attention. And sometimes they're good means, right? Like we go to church, hopefully, not to um, feel like some sort of selfish thing, but we go to feed our soul and our spirit and to share in the gospel and to teach it and to learn it. Uh, so, but the world uses evil things to entice, like selfishness and vanity and those types of things to draw us into stealing our attention. But yeah, no, I think it's it's kind of that. And then we get so involved. And now, not to say that social media is a necessary evil. You can use it as any other tools to uh, positive. But it is good to be aware of those things, the mental vulnerabilities we might all have. Um, let's let's move on. I saw this and it just hydroxychloroquine. Can I even say that? I mean, I should be able to say it at this point. I mean, considering this zero hedge screenshot of the Mayo Clinic on the Mayo Clinic's website, it says this: hydroxychloroquine. This is a screenshot that was posted by Zero Hedge. Uh, is used to treat malaria, which we all knew. It is also used to prevent malaria infection. What is this? I can't see the bottom there. Prevent malaria infection in areas or regions where it's known, uh, where it is known that other medicines may not work. May also be used to treat coronavirus, COVID-19, in certain hospitalized patients. Interesting. I remember that that was the most hotly debated topic of 2020. To the point that if you believe that hydroxychloroquine was a treatment, a viable treatment for coronavirus, not that I was a scientist or any of us were, but that it was even a possibility you were literally killing people. You remember that? Oh yeah, it was insane. It was like, it was like, if you have any idea for an alternative treatment, then you're responsible for Meemaw that died. Yeah. It was crazy. And sure enough, it works. Apparently, right? I always believed it did. Same with ivermectin. Come at me. That one was an important one for me right there. Okay, that's the news. Been going on for a little while on those. I want to talk about this. It's something I've been thinking about a lot. Obviously, hotly debated within the Christian sphere, political sphere. Which form of government should Christians advocate for? Should they pursue, should they want to implement in, in their society? In the ideal world, right? Um, and so I've been questioning this, the idea of Christian nationalism, and who, many but different people defining Christian nationalism... There's the Protestant version of Christian nationalism, then there's like the Catholic version of Christian nationalism. Then questions like, well, is Christian nationalism necessarily authoritarian? I imagine some brands of uh, Christian nationalism are. And some would say, well, you can't have all these different subjective versions of Christian nationalism because it has an objective definition. And so if you're using or appealing to that term, then you have to use the, uh, the prescribed definition of what it means. 
Now, I don't agree with that. I think that I think that, that what it is, it's a term or phrase that is actually actively being developed, funny enough, speaking of MVPs. Um, but, but Chorus and I are, 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 are likely in two, two different uh, leanings here. Well, we are in our previous discuss- discussions. I, I think it'd be interesting to start it with a couple things. We live in what some would say a democracy. And a democracy is kind of defined in the rule of the majority, which really is the rule of subjective human. It's relative to the human whim. And, and, and people are fickle, right? Right, Chorus? Oh, yeah, they are. And democracy is... Yeah, so pure democracy is majority rule. Yeah. Which obviously has downsides. It, it, somebody had said it. It's like uh, two wolves and a and a sheep voting for on what's for dinner. Exactly. Yeah, it's a great analogy. It is, and that's what it is defined in its original form. Now, a republic, as I understand, is the rule of law. That there is this objective. You know, it's hard because then democracy kind of plays a role into this, if not ultimately defined the law, but it's ultimately ruled by, we live in a republic, right? The constitution is the underlying law of the land. Everything is um, ultimately hinged upon whether or not it's constitutional. Like our governor tried to ban guns uh, unilaterally, and she got um, shut down by a federal judge. And that got um, sustained, by the way, so it's continuing, which is good. That's Um, good. I hadn't heard that. Yeah. Yeah. So that would be kind of the republic view. But I think that you could still live in this idea of a secular republic, which would just be meaning that you don't attribute a name or a god to the law, the absolute. So in a way, this is my understanding, and I'm thinking out loud here. In a way, the Constitution, we were having this discussion right before we went on. The Constitution, the... um, The Bill of Rights, or like, uh, for example, uh, in the Declaration of Independence, all, they all signed this, right? The founders were like, yes, this is, we agree to this, that all men are created equal, and they were given certain uneal- inalienable rights, uh, and they were endowed by their creator. And so they, they kind of give a name to those rights, and who gives those rights? The state doesn't give those rights, God gives those rights, Right. Right? I, I agree with that, yeah. <laughs> Here we go. I, I agree with that completely, yeah. Uh, but the Constitution is framed... I feel like we aren't maybe framing like a, a solid maybe structure for the listener here. Go ahead. Um, so like th- 30,000 feet level, I would lean toward individual liberty and uh, individual freedom. Of course, it's more of the libertarian, right? Yeah, definitely more of the libertarian uh, versus Christian nationalist. But technically a secular libertarian, because you're, what it ultimately, what I understand that coming down to is, is that we can get there without attributing it to a God or a, a specific underlying faith. So it's hard because we opened up, you, you said the word, an idealistic society. In an future. ideal society, yeah. The ideal would be this. And, yeah, and, and I, I can't argue from an ideal standpoint because we live in realistic. a substructure that has 
cultural boundaries and constitutional boundaries. So I would have a different conversation with you if I said, we're going to go buy an island that no one wants and what, what are we going to institute from this ground up? Mm-hmm. That would probably look different from what I would debate. So would you, would you advocate for a Christian nation in, in, in that case? I would advocate for probably a theocracy. Okay. Where basically the constitution is the word of God. But you think to be idealistic in these terms or on this issue within politics would, is wrong? I don't think it's fruitful. Doug Wilson actually says that in the first chapter of his book, or the, uh, in the preface of his book, I believe. Kind of how he sets the tone. Yeah, I would say it's probably not fruitful, because um, to believe that we would institute some something uh, without a regard for the social context that we all live within, mm-hmm. um, one, makes an enemy out of anyone who doesn't get with the program. Yeah. And two, it starts, it starts to get really muddy with what you do with the dissenters. You know sure, I mean? sure. And this is a good point. This is a good point because I believe most of the people that advocate for Christian nationalism believe that you don't get there by force, you know, by, by revolution necessarily, by violent means. Um, <laughs> this could get into funny territory uh, just being that it's public and it's on YouTube and all that stuff. But, um, but they kind of advocate for, no, there has to be you know, a mass revival uh, of the human spirit, that there has to be, it has to be the predominant view. You know, it can't be just like some minority 3% instituting it upon the more, uh, over the majority. It's kind of like going back to what even like, uh, was it Ben Franklin or one of the founders uh, said that, um, that the, our government uh, cannot uh, work unless by a moral people Something yeah, it requ- requires a moral backbone of the people for it to uphold itself. Yeah, and so that's a you know a principle. Obviously, the, you, it, a government ought to, it is necessarily um, well, not necessarily utilizes the consent of the governed. Otherwise, you can't maintain that with a peace, a peaceful uh, governing. Right, a successful governance needs the consent of the governed. Um, so, with that out of the way, though. There's some things to think through, because even still, like in the ideal world, some people would disagree with you, that you would, you'd want a theocracy or that type of thing. Some people, even Christians, would say, would argue that secular society is what sh- is the ideal, right? That, that, um, and when I say that, I mean when you don't attribute to law or... Uh, there's this idea, I was having this kind of exploration in my head that yesterday, working on jewelry. I'm listening to a couple books on the, on the matter, and there's this idea that you no longer become an objective thinker, or objective on the issue, when you attribute to law a founder. Right? Does that make sense? So, in our society, the idea is to kind of have a platform, an even playing field for all faiths, all religion. It's like this neutral zone. That's the assumption, as if that's can be, is real. Neutrality. And what I hear is the op- opposition to that is that neutrality is, is actually fiction. It's a, it's a myth. There is never actually a neutrality. There's always a dominant ideology or religious force, whether or not it's, it's explicit. 
like in today, the state endorses certain things that are contrary to Christianity, historic Christianity, doctrinal Christianity, foundational Christianity. It is opposed to it, and therefore not objective. And so what these guys are advocating is for, well, you're going to live in a society that is ruled by a god, likely a false god, well, it will be a false god if it is not the true god, namely God the Father, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob made clear through his son, Jesus Christ. So, this is my logic. But before we do fully get there, I want to show this tweet. It's by uh, Smash Balls. <laughs> <laughs> He's a guy on Twitter. Ball. You got it? It's there not. it is. There you go. It says here, Jesus did not, it didn't command us to establish religious freedom in the nations. He commanded us to Christianize the nations and teach them to obey all that he commanded. Right? Now, this is to my Christian friends. He didn't, right? What do you think about that? I don't know what the term Christianize means. To evangelize? Well, okay, there, let, let me, let me give the There are words that right? I would not disagree with that are commonly used that would not cause me to pause that he could have used, but he used the word Christianize, and I don't know what that means. So he's referring to the Great Commission. This is Matthew 28, 18. Okay, it says, Then Jesus came to them and said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. So that's what he's referencing. Now, certain key words are used here. This is the NIV translation. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, Holy Spirit and teaching them to obey everything that I have commanded you. So, so if he actually means evangelize, then I have no problem with that. Uh, but evangelism uh, consists of a certain set of actions and intentions, I think, that are clear and noble, always. Um, and Christianize could mean a lot of things that I don't know if I could get on the program with. But it wouldn't really be Christianizing, if not in truth. Like, I'm sure somebody could use that term and, and, and malign it, but, but, but you can't really pervert Christ as the root of that word and, and the truest, whatever the truest oh, meaning yeah, of it. Oh, can, because you add the word eyes to it, and what and that could mean anything to the person who writes the description of this new word that just exists on Twitter. To me... If this person's intentions were completely pure, he would have said evangelize or preach the gospel to or make disciples of or any of the words that Christ said. So I have no problem with his words personally because I read that Great Commission is go, therefore. 
and teach the nations to obey all that I have commanded you. And it isn't like this domineering authoritarian type of thing, but it is for their good, right? We believe that God the Father is good and that only he is good. And if so, that his laws are to keep us in order. When we say this, right, Jesus says it. I think this is a good summation. Because some would say, oh, his laws are very restrictive and they're very... Jesus kind of cleans it up and he says, all of the law and the prophets are summed up in this, to love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, strength, and to love your neighbor as yourself. So if we live in this state of, of true Christian obedience to God and loving our neighbors, ourselves, and loving God the Father. That's kind of what I, I imagine Jesus is, is talking about. He's like, hey, tell, teach them to do these things. And oftentimes, that means like, yeah, there are many prophets in the Old Testament, for example, um, who go and are commissioned by God in the same mission, really, to go. Go to these nations and tell them to repent for the, from their evil ways, or he will destroy them. I mean, Jesus says that verbatim. I mean, the Sodom and Gomorrah story, you hear of this Babylon, all of these different story arcs, and even to Israel. Joshua tells Israel to stay and keep in his ways, because if you don't, he will give you up to another nation. And so there's this whole idea that I do, I do, I do think that that's kind of like a commission of what well, is. Um, to go and evangelize, but not just in the spirit. This is this is the con, uh, conflict, right? Is that there's a lot of disagreement even within the faith. Uh, we are just spiritual, like we just need to stay in our corner at our church, and and um, the historical Christians they didn't believe that. They established hospitals. They, in the beginning, in Genesis, where Adam is commissioned to, to dominate the earth for its good, for his good, for their good. The definition of Christian nationalism by the writer of The Case for Christian Nationalism, I forget his name, is quite sound, but it talks about that as a nation organized by Christians, for Christians, for their good. Uh, I, I don't know. I, I, I'm, I'm wrestling with these things. Now, there are many different like questions I think a lot of people are even developing within that sphere of like, well, what does Christian nationalism represent, and how is it not authoritarianism? Is law, this is the thing. Doug Wilson says, law is, is enforced morality. I think I got that right. Where some people say you can't, you can't enforce morality or you can't legislate morality, something like that, right? Yeah, so, so that kind of gets me full circle too when you asked the question early on, uh, do you agree with this principle that uh, laws must be moral? I think that's where, where it stemmed from. Um, and in relation to like the Bill of Rights, rights are endowed by the creator and they point to a creator in that. Mm -hmm. Sure, I believe all that is true. Um, I think that one of the most notable things about the U.S. Constitution that makes it unique in many ways is that it's one of the only legal documents that is restrictive upon the government. So it's not a, it is not a document that gives rights. It is a document that restricts the ability of a governing body to 
to, to rain down in tyranny on those rights of, of the people. And so I would ask, how is the Constitution, because I think there's like this implied thing that if you're for Christian nationalism, you must be against the Constitution. Why is, why is it that we think, you know, you know, when someone asserts Christian nationalism, that that would mean we do away with the Constitution? Now, maybe it is. Maybe, maybe that's the case. Yeah, I would say those things have to be at odds. Why? Because you get to a point where, be, for the very reason I just stated, the U.S. Constitution cannot enact and does not allow for a governing body to enact moralism. What it does is it restricts the government's ability to infringe upon individual rights and states' rights. And this is really hard for me. You know, I just was like, I'm like a, a prior, like a previously a strict constitutionalist. Like I believe in the freedom of speech and the, the, uh, the, the uh, ability. You know, it's funny. We don't even have that though. You know, if you kind of think about it practically, we don't really have that in this country. You didn't have it in 2020. Though you did have it, technically speaking, you didn't really have it. But it's an ideal. That's an ideal that we can at least. Sure. You know, get down the road with, I think. Yeah. And I think the critics would be, you know, funny enough, Michael Knowles doesn't believe in, in the freedom of speech. He thinks that some ideas should be unpermissible. He believes that, um, for example, I think uh, previous church fathers, Plato advocated for the burning of books, you know, this type of thing. And I just saw this video right before in my research. I was like, oh, that's interesting. I've actually never heard that position held by like, you know, um, to me, a rational person. And... Um, what do you think about that? So I, I would never argue that there aren't some books that I think should be burned, which might sound crazy to people. Like, their books have this like sacred place in people's hearts. But for the sake of argument, I would never argue that every book is edifying and we should maintain all of them. Uh, the concern, as always, or generally with me, is who gets to decide which books get burned. Because I think we can all, rational people can all get to a point where it's like, you know, we, you know, there are certain things that are not edifying, things you don't want your kids or things that aren't worthy. But then, you know, two, so this, gen, two generations down the line, it's like, well, what books? Now, some books of the New Testament aren't edifying anymore. So we're going to burn those. It's when you get into the, okay, you were just burning books based on subjective whims. Right. Rather like than, once, once you open that, how do you put that genie back in the bottle? Right. So, so this is what's interesting, and this is what kind of gets me fascinated, because we live, in, and Putin, put, you know, we talked about this, but Putin said it in his speech in 2013 or whatever, we played it. You can go back to one of that episode, is it rooting for Putin, or it was the, the one after the one, that? Yeah. Which was, uh, um, we were talking about the Bolsheviks. And anyway, so he was talking about in his speech that in the West, we have Satanism and Christianity on the same level because we have to remain objective right so we can't really make a ju judgment or a presupposition that satanism is 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 worse than or make that sort of judgment because if we do then there, we have to admit that we have some sort of underlying hierarchy and at the top of that hierarchy is the lordship of jesus christ that's that sounds slightly hyperbolic i mean what do you mean by we have to hold satanism and in the in West. Christianity. Well, because who, of the freedom who? of speech. For example, the freedom of speech. All religions have the same liberties. All perspectives have the same liberties, right? 
So this is what's interesting. This is why Michael Knowles doesn't believe in the freedom of speech, and it's hinged upon his definition of freedom. As I understand, he has stated, freedom is the ability to do what you ought, not the ability to do what you want. I believe that's what it is. Freedom is not the ability to do what you want, but to do what you ought. Right? And so when you're, our most, uh, my, my, I'll speak for myself, my, my most um, ardent concern in, in this, in say a Christian nationalist society is, well, what if, you know, the organized governmental body um, doesn't allow dissent and the dissent is actually the truth and good and healthy for society. And because this has happened throughout societies, right? And in, in especially even Christian societies, theocracies or the Roman Empire or, you know, whatever it be. And this is true. And so our, my concern is that, well, what if the truth, what if what is good doesn't, uh, isn't able to make its way to the Court of Appeals uh, and, and, and is squashed, Right. Sure, yeah, definitely. Because if we uh, grant power to the state or to a governmental body, that ability to exercise deciphering, this is where secularism makes its case, I think, then we give that power to a potential tyrant, right? Who, who will punish Christians. If you give that power to a governmental body, um, I would say an inevitable tyrant. I, right, I think it's, it's a matter of time versus if. I mean, we talk about book burning. Ironically, it's like. But is there the righteous Catholic, book burning? Sure. And I'm sure that the Catholic Church has engaged in that. And I, I'm also certain that the Catholic Church discourages Catholics from reading the Bible for themselves because they couldn't possibly understand it without the interpretation of the official stance of the church. I think our hands are tied as Christians in this country and secular societies. And this is, let me, let me see if I can articulate this. And this is what I mean. We find ourselves in this situation where we have tr drag queen story hour and Christians are um, essentially like pointed their finger, people point their finger at Christians and say, you see, you're, you're, you're engaging in the public square by intervening with your opinion, your subjective opinion, your Christian values, your, you know, whatever it is, your fundamentalist Christian values. And they point the finger and we say, oh, okay, so I'm stepping out of bounds. My bad. Do what you want. Even though we know these things are harmful, we know many things that exist in our society are objectively, morally wrong. But we're, our hands are tied because we cannot make that assertion and remain objective. And so at some point, I think what I'm realizing through this logic is that we have to realize we're not. As Christians, Jesus Christ is Lord. And now to bolster this thought, there's a video. It's the Instagram, can you remove the name of Christ from his commands? And this is, I think is a really, really good point. It's, do you have it? I have it here. Cool. is not against good morals. He is opposed to Jesus Christ. Satan. 
A man can have good morals his entire life, yet you and I know he will go to hell when he dies. It is Jesus Christ that everyone needs, and the devil knows this more than all of us. Dr. Anderson. Satan's goal is to remove the name of Christ from his commands. And when we do this, people are deceived into thinking that if they live a good life, they will receive God's approval and attain heaven. I think we can use morals to attract people to the Lord. Yes, but the ultimate issue in Christianity is the authority of Christ. And the devil is attacking this authority by convincing us to teach morals alone. Look at our families. They are weakening. Records are showing that over 5% of marriages end in divorce. And our young people are becoming more disrespectful. Now I believe that this is a direct result of eliminating the authority of Jesus Christ from his commands. Right. That's what I think. When you remove the authority of Jesus Christ from his command. So there's, I, I, listen, I have the same hesitations. I really do. I really do. I'm, I'm afraid of centralized power or power or authority that is absolutely over me. But if it, but if, ideally, right? Ideally, ideally. Yes, ideally. If, uh, yeah, no, I agree because there's a, it's hard. I'm, I'm, I'm honestly, I'm, I'm, I'm just, I'm in, I'm in this middle of the state of figuring these things out, obviously. I, I would say I would, I would have no problem condemning any church in any culture for not adhering to what we just heard in that clip. But is it the role of a government that is not explicitly predicated on the teachings of Jesus Christ? Can we expect that system to hold an unbelieving public to the standard of Christianity? I don't think we can. And I don't think that that would be even fruitful for the kingdom. So what do you think about this logic here? Because I think you can within a nation. What is a nation? Other than an organization, an organized group of people with a shared experience. You can define it many ways. It's really confusing. A shared experience, a shared history, you know, went to war together, whatever it is. Uh, a shared set of values. Now, of course, you have to agree upon a set of values. The Bible says, Jesus says very clearly, a house divided against itself cannot stand. A nation divided amongst itself. Same principle. A double-minded man is crooked in all his ways. This idea that even in, in the individual form, th this is where my logic's getting, right? So and you think about for yourself. If you, you can't think two separate ideas within yourself and not be crazy, not be double-minded, right? Like, I can't think, yeah, salvation comes through faith alone. And, and at the same time think, no, it comes from works. Like, those things are inconsistent, and there's going to be a natural chaos within, within myself until I resolve that issue, a natural tension. And using that logic, extrapolating it out into a nation, which is, you know, a bigger organi organism than the body, then if we don't have a resolved set of values and ideas and laws that we agree upon who, you know, this is a Christian nation by history. As far as majority, Protestant, ordained, we are endowed by our Creator with certain unalienable rights, um, with liberty and justice for all under God. There's this idea that it's always got to be presupposed there is an author. And that's why that video is important to me. Because it's not like these things exist in, in like some sort of 
That's the, the ultimate. That's it. There is an informer. There is an authority above it who, who, you know, we believe as Christians, and John says, that Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And when he says he is the truth, and John says so in John 1, that he is the word of God, the Logos, that he is, he, he, he is the truth that we appeal to in reason. When you and I reason with one another like we are right now, Jesus says, and this is how I understand it, that he is there with us. Because he is the Logos. He is the truth. That, that's partially why I think you can make an objective appeal to the tenets of Christianity. But, but do you um, see how secularism will say that, you know, you're not objective anymore. You're being subjective and you're asserting, you know, this thing. And so that you're not actually participating, you're not playing by the rules of secularism. I, you are I, a Christian think, nationalism if you I think assert you that. Can, I, don't, I don't know. I think you can make an appeal to reason, which the source of reason is God himself, the source of truth and goodness. Things aren't good and true because they're good and true and God leans toward that versus being deceitful and evil. Um, things are good and true because they are of the nature of God. You know, you can't separate those two things. And so I think you can make a reason. Yeah, I agree. But I think what you're arguing is anti-secularism. And if you follow that logic all the way out, then you say, no, we believe that life begins at conception because God says so. And he is the author and perfecter of our faith. And and you use that logic, and people will reject that, and they, that's, they reject that was the presuppositionalism, to my understanding, and I'm, I'm new to some of these things, I, uh, words, but they reject that. that you, can't, you can't presuppose that, because I think that's the core of the ideological war, or the, the, the war we right now. I don't even need to make an appeal to that. Like, their conscience exists, and I can make an argument, a successful argument, I think, or a fruitful argument at the least, with an atheist— the same way I can make one with a secularist or anything else, you know? Mm -hmm. Um, now is that the most fruitful way for me to like, I, I don't think that appealing to my faith, um, or like the tenets of a mm. faith that they have no connection to, no correlation to, that's not going to win them over to Christ. So why would orchestrating that from the top of a government hierarchy have any more fruit in the eternal landscape? I guess I'm, I'm, I'm being stubborn on this is like a battle that I think is quite important. I agree with you, and I understand, and I actually think the founders found themselves in this position, where I remember um, Judge Andrew Napolitano, he gave a talk on the Constitution, of the, the, the uh, Declaration of Independence, and he says, he kind of, uh, he makes it objective, not so much subjective, uh, and when I say that, he says um, that we are endowed by our creator or by nature for the atheist. And see, I guess what I'm contending with here is that when we do that, yes, it's true. And God is, he set nature in motion. And though some may not accept that, it is God the Father uh, manifest in his son, Jesus Christ, we are stripping the name of Jesus from the authority of his commands. And I, and I think that is something that worth being stubborn about. And now I agree that, you know, this is, you know, you're never going to get that perfect, but I'm saying 
if we're being at least honest with it, that is, that's hard, right? I mean, would you, would you agree that that's, or would you argue that that's not stripping the authority of Christ from his commands by taking his name off of, um, I don't think so. Not entirely, not in every context. Because where we get to is now is we'll get to, we were talking about this, sorry, I cut you off, but in the constitution, we're talking about the idea of, um, we have human rights, right? Life, liberty, the pursuit of happiness, these types of things. Well, ultimately, we have to appeal to something higher than that to define what is life. When does it begin? And so, as Christians, we believe it begins at conception, that there's a scriptural reference for this, but the world will reject this. And so they will take the Constitution, but they'll redefine it based on their subjective definitions. Well, they'll, they'll reject it in a form of ideas. I don't care how the world defines marriage because they don't, they're not held to the standard that I am. So call it whatever you want. You know, I don't have to participate in that. So, so um, we're all just kind of playing a facade is what I'm saying. I don't think so. In saying I, that we agree on the same thing, yeah, we're constitutionalists, or yeah, we're a republic or democracy, or, you know, we're saying all these things, but we're actually meaning entirely different things. Like my body, my choice, right? They're appealing to the Bill of Rights. They're appealing to my life, hands off, state. I don't think they're appealing to the Bill of Rights. I think they're, they're appealing to, I think they're just wanting to pursue evil and they'll use any means necessary. The, the, I bill agree. Of, the Bill of Rights, again, does not grant the government ability to moralize anything. What it does is it restricts the government themselves from coming down on a free people and establishing a restrictive system upon them. That's why it's written in the way that it is. The Bill of Rights is a list of things of do-nots to the government itself, not can-dos to the people. And that's why I think that within our structure, um, a Christian nationalist structure doesn't jive with the U.S. Constitution. So you have to begin with a totally different set of of social arrangements in order to make one of these things work or the other. I don't, I don't think they're compatible in actual practice. Now, do I think, you know, you're kind of saying we have an impotent church that doesn't want to engage in the public forum. Well, I think that's a problem with the, the church. I think if the, if your church is not encouraging you to speak up in the public forum and to take um, public office and to not be leaders of your community, that's a major issue. And, and I would say any church that's trying to teach good morals and, and good living and strip out the deity and the lordship of Christ, you're going to a false church. Find a new one, you know. Um, but I think that within the context of the U.S. Constitution and the function that the, the Constitution has within allowing or preventing uh, rights from being squashed, the way you do that is you disciple people into leadership roles where they then take office. And if, you know, three-fourths majority of Congress is Christian, well, maybe the laws that start getting written look a little bit different, you know? And I have no problem with that. Mm. Yeah, and I have no issue with the decent... I love... Like, I'm a big crypto guy. Like, I'm big decentralization. I guess I'm, I'm exploring the idea. Could you... Um, could you maintain the truthful presuppositional truth that I'm sorry, the, the, the presuppositional truth that God is the definer of right and wrong 
He is the informer, the author of law, of love, of, of all things that ultimately come back to he is the source. He is the, uh, the, the ultimate court of appeals. And, you know, when we have a document like the Constitution, um, is it possible to have a form of government that is representative by the people? It always will be. I think that would be, uh, that last statement is what's hotly contended about Christian nationalism. Yeah, it's also interesting. I don't know what to think, honestly. So I'm 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 gonna read I'm I'm starting to read this book. Um, you might as well play it here. Uh, I believe it's the last link. So I'm reading it's it's Doug Wilson. He just released his book this year. It's called Mere Christendom, but it's his case for Christian nationalism ish. But he, you know, he loves America and he wants to see a nation thrive under the context, in the context of Christianity. Exploring what that means. But yeah, he wrote a book about it. So I'm, I'm exploring it. Let's see what this is. The trailer. My son is gay. And I hope that Jesus forgives him just like he does the rest of us. <laughs> Doug Wilson, Moscow minister and columnist with the Idahonian Daily News. The question that confronts us is, what does it mean in a disobedient culture to be prophetic? There be a place for same-sex couples? Uh, no, no marriage. Even though it's the law of the land in the United States? Uh, just like Roe used to be. Heavy. We want to turn the world upside down, and you don't turn the world upside down by being nice. I believe that we are in, in this polytheistic, pluralistic moment, and the desperate need of the hour is for our Christian leadership to say, Jesus is Lord, and there is no other. Amen. Pretty heavy, huh? Pretty intense. So I'm exploring that. If you're interested, people. Uh, he uh, has the Canon, I have the Canon Plus app, and uh, the book is, uh, the audiobook is on that app with that subscription. Um, yeah, man. We'll have more. We'll talk about it some more once I have some more thoughts. It's a lot to consider. I think if I was more of an optimist, I probably would be in the Christian nationalism camp uh, sooner and more fervently, maybe. Yeah, I guess we should have touched on that because I do have a couple notes that were kind of on the post-millennial versus pre-millennial and kind of how you see the future as a Christian. Yeah. I believe the uh, Puritans believed themselves to, they, they had the desire of wanting to usher in the millennial reign, something along those lines, the millennium, the biblical millennium. And they had that hope of that future. Now in modern, a lot of modern American eschatology, end times, future um, theology. They believe it's going to get worse and worse and worse. And I don't actually share that perspective. Maybe we'll chat about that on another episode. Um, yeah, I don't, I, don't, I don't think that's the trajectory or has happened. I don't think that's actually what the Bible describes necessarily. Definitely hard times, but um, that would be a fun thing to talk about. But yes, it definitely depends on, on how you see the future. I also think one of the reasons that 
Christian nationalism is like a lower on the totem pole for me than individual liberty when it comes to like a government system is that I see government hierarchy to be a lot less meaningful in the scales of salvation and eternity. Like I don't see the fruit from a national structure um, other than maybe social reforms and behavior modification, which isn't of no value. I think we would, everyone would agree with that. Social, social constraints have uh, merit for sure. Even if it's just for the, the restraint. We have them. That's what what laws are, right? It's just depending on, on what, to what degree do those laws extend? Right. I just, I just think the best forum for Christianity is the church. It's the most powerful forum for Christianity and the most impactful. And when you take it out of that context and you try to like infuse it into other hierarchies, it starts to get messy. So Christianity shouldn't be informing politics? It should definitely be informing politics. It shouldn't be politics. Okay, yeah, and so I'm just wrestling scriptures, like all of Christ for all of life. You, you, so it's interesting as you talk about the dissonance um, that you experience when you try to figure out, like, okay, the dissonance for you is, I'm a Christian that's called to live to this standard, and I'm called to reach the world, and I'm mm-hmm. living in a society that rejects Christ, mm-hmm. right? I have a dissonance in, within me that says, um, I'm, I'm called to live to a certain standard, and I'm called to preach the gospel, and my model for that was how Christ did it, and he didn't establish a physical uh, kingdom. Kingdom here. Uh, he didn't. He didn't topple the government that he was within. Uh, he discipled people, and that discipleship and people accepting his lordship had rippling effects that have no legislative, you know, no direct legislative impact. Um, and and free will, the free will that we get to, you know, exercise in accepting Christ and his lordship, that gives us an out. Now, the consequence of that out is terrible, right? But I make it for myself. And so it doesn't make some human institution the arbiter of of right and wrong to the degree that like an entire nation system could or would. Um and that's when I think I start to get it starts to break down for me. I think the deep, you know, I I think it goes back to christianize that word. Because I do think that we kind of presuppose, <laughs> funny enough, a lot of um what that would explicitly mean based off of history and what we've seen in the past, authoritative, you know, um, the Inquisition, um, the Roman Empire. We look to the past and as to kind of inform what that might be. We, that's how our imaginations work. However, I agree. It's, in, it's spiritual first, right? He created a spiritual kingdom within us and that eventually, funny enough, goes back to what I was saying, is the spiritual nature will eventually manifest and will become our physical uh, behavior. Like we can't help, right? It's the, it's the faith will eventually beget works, right? Yeah, they're connected in that way. But it starts at the heart. In the same way, I think a Christian nation could exist within that context. It starts in the heart of man, and then you have enough Christians who want to organize themselves together into a nation, and they want to define themselves under the authority of Jesus Christ, 
this is the ideal. Of course, is how do you do that in a country that's already so divided ideologically? And you know, is it? You know, yeah, I don't have any answers, of course, and I don't even think they even advocate for any sort of like revolutionary activity. I think they more so advocate for the idea of um, revival in the hearts of man, and through that, their behavior changes, and through that, they have a desire to want to form a government amongst themselves for their good under the authority of Christ, and that is my desire. I don't know what that means, how that comes into being, but anyways, bottom up, not, not, not top down, because even that's Jesus, right? I mean, he, he talks about, call no man father, call no man rabbi. He talks about these things right there, I think, in Matthew 23. It's true. And so, in truth, Christianize the world would be used a lot, utilizing those principles the essence of that, if if truly Christian, that's what I'm saying. That's what I'm arguing. That it wouldn't be forcefully authoritarian necessarily, because that wasn't Jesus' character, right? I think it was Pilate that te- uh, said, "Are you here to start a kingdom?" Or what was it? It was a, "If I were, they would be fighting with swords, but my kingdom is not of this world." We heard that this Sunday, I think as a reminder, but, um, but it's true. The kingdom is in the spirit, is in our, is in our hearts, is, is within us, but may that kingdom manifest on earth. <laughs> All right. I'm going to skip the listener questions. We went a little long. Um, and just you know kind of, I, I just want to encourage the listeners, like, uh, don't be afraid to have conversations like this. I yeah. think, uh, to Chad's point, specifically when it comes to social issues, political issues, uh, your faith should inform the way you behave and the way you interact in the public forum. Um, you have a valid voice. Um, if you're a believer, that's informed by the true word of God. So get out there and, 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 and say what you need to say. Um, and also like, like buddies behind closed doors, like work out these big ideas. Uh, use your brain. Don't just go with what you've heard. Um, I think that like that's the way you find the gold is by sorting through the muck with friends and testing your ideas and a good idea it'll stand you know yeah. especially if it's informed by if you're you know communicating in good faith yeah and you're really trying to pursue what the lord has for you yeah good words chorus i think we'll end it there thank you guys so much for listening to the show we put so much into this uh chorus is staying later than he probably thought um so labor of love i hope it means something to you there's some sort of value in this, uh, engaging in these t- sorts of discussions. Throw something in the comments. What do you think? Um, be sure to give us a like and a subscribe. And we'll see you next time. Okay. Love you. Bye.